From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Could sucking carbon out of the air be Colorado's big solution to climate change? There are five major hurdles to overcome first. CPR climate and environment reporter Sam Brash is here to break it down. Then, avalanche rescue dogs are coming to northwest Colorado, like four-month-old Daisy. Beginning of next winter, she'll be full-grown and have the capability to uh, be moving through deeper snow and figuring it out. We'll head to Steamboat Springs to find out what it takes to train these four-legged members of the ski patrol. And later, the creative and social evolution of a national award-winning theater company in Boulder. Theater has awakened in America to the very shocking conclusion that we weren't always as diverse and inclusive as we should have been. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, a CPR climate reporter. Ranching has a big carbon footprint. Some Colorado ranchers are working to lessen that impact and adapt to a drier reality. By helping promote healthier soil, um, it helps the water infiltrate and stay on the land instead of running off. Climate change impacts us all. We're committed to helping you understand what's being done about it. Invest in climate solutions coverage at CPR.org slash climate. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. A miracle climate solution is now sitting in a parking lot north of Denver. That's at least how a company called Global Thermostat is selling its new product, a machine that sucks carbon directly from the atmosphere. CPR's Sam Brash visited to see it unveiled last week, and he says the company's claim should be taken with, well, a grain of salt. Welcome, Sam. Hello, glad to be here. Could you start by painting for us a picture of this new system? What does it look like? Yeah, so Global Thermostat has built what's called a direct air capture system. It's in its uh, parking lot at its headquarters in Brighton. And it looks like a, a basically like a big windowless house. The walls of, are made of these massive fans. And inside those fans are porous bricks coated in a special proprietary solvent. That's where the magic really happens here as the air flows through the bricks. The solvent sucks the carbon dioxide out, and then that's stored in tanks on either side of the machine. The company says this is the largest working direct air capture system in North America and the second largest in the planet. Wow. Carbon dioxide is the main greenhouse gas warming the atmosphere. So this is why the company is saying it's reversing climate change. It's taking humanity's emissions directly out of the air basically undoing the damage we've done, right? Exactly. That's what it says. And it wasn't just the company toasting climate salvation at this event last week. Former U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi traveled to Colorado for this event, and this is how she talked about the unveiling. When this story of humanity's victory over the climate crisis is written, today will be a defining moment. I believe that. What a thrill it is for us to all be here together to witness this great transformation. Governor Jared Polis was also there, and he said Global Thermostat was leading a clean tech revolution in Colorado. Uh, We know that to achieve our climate goals and protect the future of our planet, we need every available tool and every available technology. And the innovation that will occur here is a resource that, of course, won't just benefit Colorado, but the country and the world. 
So I think it's fair to say both were effusive in their praise for this company. They love this idea and they love the plan to suck carbon out of the air. Okay, so what do climate scientists think about this idea? Could carbon capture really help with climate change? The short answer is yes, but it's actually a little more complicated. So if you look at the latest IPCC report, that's the big report from UN climate scientists, and they released a synthesis of all their earlier reports last month, it recognizes that there's just too much greenhouse gas in the atmosphere right now to meet our international climate goals. So while we reduce emissions, we also have to develop this technology to suck carbon out of the air or revitalize other nature-based systems like, you know, forests, which also suck carbon out of the air, mm. and really focus on those kinds of things as well to reduce what we've already emitted. But again, the big caveat here is that has to happen alongside already existing reductions in emissions. Otherwise, sucking carbon in the air probably won't be effective. So we can't keep emitting and building machines to counteract all of our cars and coal-fired power plants. Exactly. Like, think of the atmosphere like a back bathtub. You know, right now the faucet's on full blast. So we could add a drain, but it has to be a pretty big drain if we're going to actually empty the bathtub. Carbon capture only works if we turn the faucet off first or at least tamper it down a bunch. Mm. And it has to be big enough. And, you know, that carbon capture that captured carbon actually has to be safely stored somewhere as well. We can't just mm -hmm. let it float back up into the atmosphere. So they can't add more emissions. So are you unsure if this new system is actually pulling carbon from the air? Yeah, I am unsure it's actually <laughs> pulling carbon out the air. And let me tell you why. So direct air capture systems take a ton of energy. It's really tough to condense all that air and effectively pull carbon out of it. And Colorado's grid right now mostly runs on fossil fuels. So you have to consider, you know, how much carbon is it taking out versus how much carbon is it emitting mm. from what it's drawing on the grid. Now, the company says this is carbon negative, but they didn't give me anything to demonstrate that. Now, what if it were run from renewable energy? Would that make this more effective? You bet. Or nuclear energy could work too, right? Here's the thing with that. I mean, this is going to be another draw on a grid that we will all supposedly need, maybe to drive our cars, to heat our homes. We're all trying to use wind and solar as we adjust for climate change. So if we build all these carbon capture plants, there's a risk that energy prices go up because there's just more demand for a limited resource. Now, another point you brought up is that carbon needs to be safely stored. Right. Did the company say what it's doing with what it collects from the atmosphere? It did not. And that's a really good point and a really good question. There's a lot of good options for this carbon, right? You could maybe inject it back into geological formations and it could stay there permanently. That's what's happening in the biggest carbon capture plant in Iceland. Maybe you could make it into futuristic building materials. So our future skyscrapers could be built from carbon drawn from the air. Mm. That'd be really cool. Right now, what happens with most captured carbon is it's used for something called advanced oil recovery. This is a process to squeeze the last bits of fossil fuels from an otherwise spent oil or gas well. So captured carbon would help with fossil fuels, which are driving climate change. Yeah. So <laughs> it's probably on net not a great idea. Fossil fuels are the main cause of climate change. They're the main reason we're in this situation. If we're using this carbon to get more of it, that might not help in the long run. Now, in your article on this, you mentioned cost would be another hurdle for the industry. Is it clear how much it is to operate these new systems? 
Now, the company didn't give us an exact figure on how much it costs to run its system, but it did say it's trying to hit uh, $100 per ton of carbon dioxide. That's generally seen as kind of this magic number in this young carbon capture industry where it might make sense to build, uh, use this for advanced materials. Maybe companies would pay to offset their emissions if it were at that price. The CEO did tell me he's confident the company can get there as it scales up its technology. But again, we don't know how much this costs right now. Okay, to sum this up, what do you think about the promise of carbon capture? Is it a reason to be hopeful about climate change? I think It's something we should do, but we shouldn't put all of our eggs in this basket. Look, if humanity gets its stuff together on climate change, if we slash emissions, if we abandon fossil fuels in reserves in the ground, if all that happens, this could be a powerful tool to mitigate the damage we've already done. So I want this technology to exist at some point in the future. But like, let's say we stay on our current trajectory, we keep buying SUVs, we keep having more coal power plants, we keep drilling new fracking rigs. And that scenario, this is really just a fancy fig leaf. It's a way for companies (laughs) to pay for their to offset their emissions. And frankly, that's often done for PR purposes more than actually being an effective way to slow climate change. So I think that there's a chance that this is a really powerful technology. But if Global Thermostat wants to show that, they have to, you know, get over this lack of transparency and demonstrate the good good this technology is really doing. All right. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Sam Brash is one of our climate and environment reporters. You may read his article on Global Thermostat at CPR.org. When we come back, the ski patrol is getting bigger in northwest Colorado thanks to some four-legged workers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado Wonders answers listener questions. One of my favorite place names in Colorado is the Never Summer Range. Well, I'm assuming it means it's always cold and wintry there, so snow never goes completely away. Does summer really never reach the never summer mountains? I'm Eden Lane. Get the answer from Colorado Wonders at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Steamboat Springs closes for the season on Sunday, but it's already looking ahead to next season with expanded terrain. That includes areas long coveted by backcountry skiers. But that new terrain also means increased risk of avalanches. So work is starting now to make sure the ski patrol is ready. Mud, drop. Drop it. Oh, that's a good dog. That's a good dog. That's a good dog. Good girl, Mud. Good girl, Mud. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, get there. Get there. Good girl. That's ski patroller Nate Birdseye. Mud is his new partner. The Belgian Melanois Shepherd mix is just a few months old, but is fast at work training to be one of Steamboat's first two avalanche dogs. Like all new employees, Mud faces extensive onboarding. In this case, a lot of tug of war with her favorite toy. A glove. So right now we're just in the heavy play stage, uh, letting her be at the workplace and then have 
spurts of big play where whether it's playing with Daisy, playing with me or Sally or Chad, um, just getting her really excited about coming to work. Daisy, Sally, and Chad are Mud's co-workers. The latter two are of the bipedal variety. They make up the forefront of Steamboat's expanded avalanche rescue program. Sally House is the dog program coordinator. We're going to over double our avalanche terrain, um, as well as the increase in backcountry skiing, uh, the popularity of backcountry skiing, and the amount of users that are just outside of our boundary. Uh, we realized it was a resource that we did not have currently at Steamboat, and so this year, I think with both of those factors, Steamboat decided that it was time to include an avalanche dog program with our ski patrol. Adding a dog program is a slow process. It takes months to complete, and Bird's Eye says trainers need to take the long view with dogs like Mud. She's still in her major growing stage. You know, you want to keep their energy level contained and not let them go too hard. Um, as they're growing, you want to let their body grow. And they say about nine months old is when you start the heavy search training. You get them going on more of the, uh, the program of now we're looking for people, now we're, we're starting to really introduce the job. So she's about four months old right now. Beginning of next winter, uh, she'll be full grown and have the capability to, to uh, be moving through deeper snow um, and, and doing the game and figuring it out. The game, in this case, is finding people in snow. And it being a game is part of what makes avalanche dogs effective. Beyond their olfactory talents, dogs aren't prone to panic when searching for an avalanche victim because it's just play for them. This winter, ski patrollers have been introducing the dogs to the game. That means sticking someone headfirst into a snow cave and teaching a black lab named Daisy that there's a reward for finding him amid all that snow. Find it, Daisy. Come on. Find it. Good girl, Daisy. Good girl. Good girl, Daisy. Good girl. Come here. Good dog. Yes, good girl. Good girl. Good girl. Ready? Chad Fagler works and lives with Daisy. He says the dogs will be needed beyond the confines of Steamboat because this is the first such program in northwest Colorado. That means they could be called out to anywhere. It could be up in Buffalo Pass. It could be in the Zirkle Wilderness. It could be on Cameron Pass. It could be in the Flat Tops. So be ready for it. Find it. Dig, 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 dig. While Steamboat's avalanche dog program is just beginning, the history of dogs being used is extensive and international. Charlie Reynolds has more than three decades in the business, including seeing dog rescues firsthand in France. It's so predictable in Europe. I mean, they bring out all the probes are out. Everybody knows that, you know, it's been snowing for three days and it's sunny. And it's so predictable people will ski off piece. So all the dogs come up. The helicopters are on standby. I mean, they're on ready for the day. And generally... Somebody will trigger a slide, and they'll deploy the dogs if needed. More months of training are required before Mud or Daisy can complete the requirements set out by the Colorado Rapid Avalanche Deployment Program. The dogs' arrival was only announced in late January, though they quickly developed a collegial working relationship. Yeah, they love each other. Um, it's hilarious to see when 
when I bring Mud into the locker room and whether Daisy is there or not there, Mud immediately starts to look for Daisy and say, hey, where's, where's my coworker at? And if she is there, Mud gets even more excited and they start doing what they're doing right now. And uh, that's playing. Daisy will spend the summer on job sites with Chad, and Mud is getting ready for her first shoulder season in Steamboat. That's the period of snowmelt and few tourists from which she draws her name. The resort closes Sunday, following a banner year for snowfall. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Your old or unwanted car still has value. Donate it to Colorado Public Radio. We'll help free up some space in your garage or driveway, and you'll help CPR bring the programs you value to listeners across the state. Any make, any condition, we'll take it. Start the safe and easy car donation process and find answers to your donation questions at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. It's affectionately known simply as Betsy, B-E-T-C, the Butterfly Effect Theater of Colorado. And like the butterfly in its name, the national award-winning theater company is undergoing a metamorphosis of sorts. CPR's arts and culture reporter Eden Lane has the story. After 17 years at the helm of the theater company they co-founded, Husband and wife team Rebecca Romaley and Stephen Weitz will step down as the managing director and producing artistic director, respectively, at the end of this season. Soon after the couple arrived in Colorado in 2004, Rebecca Romaley says they noticed the Colorado Shakespeare Festival and Boulder's Dinner Theater, now BDT Stage, were thriving. But beyond that, they didn't see contemporary American theater in the greater Boulder area. And so we started our theater company, and we did not have a lot of foresight to it. We started the theater company the way a kid gets a puppy in college. You know, this will be fun. What could go wrong? This won't be work. And so we uh, learned as we went. We made mistakes. We learned from them. And, uh, and and here we are 17 years later. So you mean it's not like the Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland movies where they just hang up a curtain in a barn and then it's a theater? <laughs> and that's a theater. Ta-da! <laughs> it's actually very much like that, uh, except then the when the movie ends, you have to keep going and like keep doing things. Yeah. Stephen Weitz says in addition to the business of running a business, it was a constant struggle of limited resources and limited time to keep up the quality of art they produced. Um, I think one of the things that we learned, you know, I, I think we took this very seriously from the get go, but it became even more prominent over time was the people that work with us are the magic. You know, they are the ones who bring things to life. They are the ones who give of their time and energy. And we really learned that, you know, that's where we need to invest. That's what those are the people we need to take care of. And I, I you know, I, I hope that's true of all arts organizations, but it was always something that was really at the core of what we tried to do. The pair agrees running Betsy required them to wear many, many hats and constantly put out fires. So what was the fun part? Making plays. Yeah. (laughs) Doing the shows. The the really fun part, and this kind of echoes what I said at the beginning, is 
working with all the uh, amazing people that we've gotten to work with over the years, whether it was our our staff or our board, you know, people who gave of their time and energy to, to make it possible, all of the artists that we've worked with in the room, the playwrights that we've worked on developing new plays, the designers, stage managers, everybody, you know, that's really the fun of, of theater is getting in a room with a bunch of other creative people and making something great. That's that's absolutely uh, the, the end all be all of the whole exercise. Yeah, I would agree. I think one of the fun parts for me uh, from the perspective of the managing director was being able to create work, create jobs and opportunities for the amazing, amazing talent that we have in the Denver metro area and being part of that economy. Weitz says while they understood the value of creating a theater company, the pair didn't realize how audacious an endeavor it would be. He says he never pictured doing it for 17 years. I don't know that we maybe would have done it if we had known that it was going to be mm. what it turned out to be. Um, it's quite daunting, you know, the, the whole process of, of keeping it alive and keeping it turning over from year to year and dealing with turnover and all those things. Um, it's been incredibly rewarding, but I do wonder if we had seen it all laid out before us, if maybe we might have, you know, decided to open a restaurant. Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, the the, the 17 years that we've been running Betsy, uh, I, I've also had another a full time job beyond this. Uh, and, uh, you know, a few years into the company, we got married. A few years after that, uh, we had our son. And I would like to wear a few less hats. Than I have been wearing uh, for, for for many many years, and they've all, as Stephen said, I mean, this has all been so rewarding and such a wonderful learning experience. On March thirtieth, the Betsy Board announced that established theater makers Jessica Robley and Mark Reagan will step in as artistic and managing directors beginning July first of twenty twenty three. They also recently launched their own company called Clover and Bee Productions. And, and no sooner did we launch it than we see that Rebecca and Stephen were leaving Betsy. And that's when I began discussions. I reached out to the board and said, wow, I've been such a fan of Butterfly for so long. Uh, I would love to explore the idea of Jess and I taking over Butterfly Effect and perhaps merging Clover and Bee into it. I feel really honored to carry on what Rebecca and Stephen have worked so hard to do and Heather Beasley with the Writers Project at Butterfly Effect. And I really respect the body of work they've created. We aspire to continue to reach for many of the same goals. Our vision aligns really well with Butterfly Effects in many ways. I think other ways we're going to hope to add is just continue experimenting with outreach to senior communities and youth and families. That has already been begun somewhat with Butterfly Effects touring, but we want to continue that element. And we're excited to dive into improv performance as a serial venture with some expert people in town that we really respect and love. And otherwise, I think we are stepping in to continue to carry the torch forward, basically. Yeah. And my first priority is to make Stephen Weitz and Rebecca Rawali proud. I don't want them to regret this decision. They have placed their confidence in us and it's our 
gosh, awesome responsibility to build on that legacy. I think theater has undergone an enormous and wonderful change since the pandemic and since the murder of George Floyd. Theater has awakened in America to the very shocking conclusion that we weren't always as diverse and inclusive as we should have been. And if there's one thing Jess and I are so dedicated to is reflecting that diversity in American society, both in sense of multiracial, multi-ethnic, but I like to also use the word multicultural. How can we, what is the challenge? The challenge is to create a season that is balanced, a season that not only presents a diverse cast, but also diverse works of art that come up, bubble up from all other communities. You know, Shakespeare, who I studied my entire life, my kids rightfully think I'm obsessed with Shakespeare. All three daughters are named after Shakespeare heroines. He said over 400 years ago through the mouths of Hamlet, that the purpose of theater is to show virtue her own feature, scorn her own image, and the very age and body of the time, his form and pressure. And every time I read that quote, I think nothing's changed. That is what the purpose of theater is. And particularly that last phrase, and the very age and body of the time, his form and pressure. What is the body of our time? What is its form and pressure? That's what I think really is the ultimate mandate for theater, to hold up that mirror to nature. I just really value this chance to work in this way, building community and making shows. And it sounds like the thing we do all the time, but I really hold it as a precious, precious opportunity because actors and artists are vying to find work and working in all sorts of odd venues, trying to trying to get seen and have an opportunity and a platform to bring in more artists and make more projects happen. As their time in leadership of the theater company they founded comes to an end, Stephen White's reflects on the value of the role theater has in this community. Just the idea that we can't ever take it for granted. Um, as audience members, as participants, as makers, whatever it is, that it's a, it's a gift for us who make it. It's a gift for us who participate or consume art. And uh, it's not, you know, there's nothing written into the universe that says it'll always be there or it'll always be what we want it to be or it'll always fulfill us in the same way. So that, I think, is just something that, that has really kind of been uh, rattling around my head lately of, of uh, how lucky we are, uh, all of us, to, to be a part of, of the artistic universe, if you will. I would say that, you know, the, the one thing that I think that theater can do better and perhaps more distinctly than any other art form is its ability to foster empathy, not just from the stories that are portrayed on stage, but empathy with your fellow audience members, empathy with your fellow artists that you're working with, both on stage and off. And I think that's something we've always needed, but also feels more important now than ever. The Butterfly Effect Theater of Colorado closes this season with a national new play network rolling world premiere of Eden Prairie, 1971, 
by Matt Smart through April 29th at the Dairy Arts Center in Boulder. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. When we come back, one woman's library donation is preserving a unique chapter in Colorado history that was on the brink of being lost forever. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. John B. Stetson traveled to Colorado as a young man to see the Rockies while he still could. He had tuberculosis. His time was short, he thought, and so he made the trek west across the plains. Camping in the cold east of Colorado Springs one night, Stetson, son of a Philadelphia hatter, fashioned a strange new hat, gave it a high crown and wide brim all around to better protect himself from sun, rain, wind, and hail. A horseman paid him $5 for that hat. Later, cured of TB and back in Philadelphia, Stetson built an empire with his creation. It could fan the flames of a campfire or carry water to a horse and keep out the sun and rain. By the time he died at the age of 76, his factory in Philadelphia was turning out hundreds of thousands. He named that hat the Boss of the Plains, but most folks just call it a Stetson. A Colorado Postcard from CPR. With the support of National Jewish Health. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The Denver Star newspaper chronicled the lives of African Americans living in the Mountain West region from 1913 to 1963. And scholars say it did so in a way that most mainstream media outlets could not or would not at the time. Efforts to preserve the paper and its place in history have been challenging, but A woman's donation to the Denver Public Library has helped fill in some important gaps, original copies dating back to the 1930s. Here's what I learned during my visit with Special Collections librarian Brian Trimbath at the Central Branch of the Library in February. Brian, thanks for joining me. Uh, Thank you for having me. So pretty exciting news, getting originals of an historic newspaper. That's not something that happens every day. Can you put into context, like, the significance of this contribution? It's pretty significant anytime we get to, to fill in a gap like this and present a more complete picture of the world that was presented in, in any publication. And this one in particular, because it's less common than the Rocky Mountain News or the Denver Post, which are mm. going to be all over the place, the Denver Star... It had a number of different title changes, a number of different owners, just kind of all over the place. And in terms of what's been digitized and what's out there, there's just some gaps that just nobody had. But this volume covers some of those gaps, particularly around the period of 1934. This publication is available digitally from a number of databases, and institutions have that digital version. Not very many have hard copies at all, but now we do, which is is a, a big deal, and I think people will find it pretty useful. And this was a donation by Dr. Nancy Dawson, who is a retired college professor and former journalist. Yeah, yeah. She called us out of the blue unsolicited and said, you know, I have this. Right away, you know, we knew it was something that we really wanted. I mean, she called us, and it wasn't even a week later we had the volume in hand. Our Western History Collection is an amazing collection. It's one of the top collections of Western Americana in the country. But like everybody's, it's, it's stilted. It tells this one side really, really well. So now we have an opportunity to fill in some of those gaps that we haven't been telling very well. I wanted to see if we could give some insight into what 
this publication really tells us about life in Denver for the black community. And I know Dr. Dawson pointed out that this publication tells the story of a community whose story wasn't generally printed in the daily newspapers of the Times. And her quote is, newspapers do a lot of talking for the African-American community. Black newspapers were essential to the story of African-American people. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? You know, when you think about the, the daily papers of, of the 20th century, um, early 20th century, mid-century and on, they're pretty monolithic in a lot of ways. Even the ones that were doing a really good job at covering the world, they had a pretty biased perspective. And a lot of communities, like the African-American community, just were not covered as well. So that goes for everything from, you know, local store openings to church events. There's a lot of church news in the Denver Star from churches that were pretty important to that community and that you don't necessarily see in the religious section of the Rocky Mountain News and Denver Post of that era. They also cover a lot of national news that was of significance to African Americans and the things that were important to them and the things that they worried about. There's a lot more coverage of racial violence in this than you would see in the, in the post or the news, and a different perspective. I mean, when it's African-Americans reporting on violence against African-Americans, it's very different than how the Rocky Mountain News or the Denver Post would cover it or that they'd cover it at all. So it's pretty interesting. Plus, you also see a lot of the advertisements for the local businesses, many of which have pictures of the proprietors. That community, Five Points, was not... It had to have its own alternates, you know, community resources, newspaper, everything. And this filled that gap for sure. And of course, Five Points being an historically black Denver neighborhood that still exists today. Absolutely. We're going to dig into some issues of the Denver Star, but you've had a chance to look at it. Is there anything that surprised you or anything particularly insightful that you noticed about it? The coverage of racial violence and the real real terms that they use is is very different from what you see. You don't you don't see these stories covered on the front page of the, of the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post at the time. When you're just flipping through this, you will see former Denver Mayor Ben Stapleton referred to in some pretty glowing terms having the support of that community despite his well-known you know connections to the to the KKK and support of that it's pretty shocking when you see that you do not expect to see Contemporary people do not expect uh, Mayor Stapleton to come popping out of these pages so much. And, of course, just to even bring this issue up to date, the community Stapleton in Denver was named after this mayor. But post-2020, there was a movement to change the name of Stapleton to Central Park. Yeah. Tell us the backstory of how this donation came about. I understand this process has been kind of a roller coaster. It's been like six, seven years. Nancy was very patient with us. She was never like, when are you guys going to do this? Because our original agreement was that we would get it done in like, you know, 90 days or something really ambitious that did not (laughs) happen at all. But she stuck with us and she really never complained. She was always very supportive. And, you know, we kept in touch over, over the years. And then when we finally got it, we had it digitized professionally, and we were able to get it to uh, Colorado Historic Newspapers, which is a a website run by the state of Colorado that digitizes newspapers, Colorado newspapers that are out of copyright mostly. So then we were able to get it up on that right away, which was a big, it was really more access than we were even hoping for. And for this institution, you know, if we have all these materials, we want to make them accessible People have to be able to look at them or like 
why do we even have them? So that was a big deal for us to get that extra accessibility in there, too. Now it's keyword searchable, and uh, you can go in to Colorado Historic Newspapers, and it's free, and you can look at the hard copy, too. That was Brian Trimbath, the Special Collections Librarian for the Central Branch of the Denver Public Library. Nancy Dawson is a retired college professor and journalist based in Russellville, Kentucky. She donated the Denver Star newspapers to the public library and waited patiently through the COVID-19 pandemic while Trimbath and his team figured out the best way to make these issues accessible to the public. Brian told me that Dr. Dawson had held on to those copies for years and through several moves. And I should note the volume weighs about 25 pounds, but she never let them go. They were a coveted gift from her mentor, who was related to a previous owner of the newspaper. Welcome, Dr. Dawson. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about why you were so passionate about getting this donation to the right institution. A lot of times, African-American artifacts don't go in the right hands. Because the people who have them, when people die, they just want to forget all about it. We don't know how to maintain and keep things. So I've had the Denver Star with me at least 25 years. And this, of course, is and through di- different moves and all yes, of that, right? Through being a professor at different schools and being a different. I lived in several places, but I kept it. Mm-hmm. And I knew one day I would get in the right hands. And um, the Denver Public Library was really interested. They wanted to make sure it was properly maintained and let the public get it. And that's what I want. Because it's nothing if it's just in my house. It needs to go where people can use it. So I'm glad of that. And these issues were given to you by your mentor, Marie Ross. And she wasn't just the newspaper's editor. She was the first African-American graduate of the University of Kansas Journalism School and the niece of the Denver Star owner, Albert Henderson, Wade Ross. And, uh, That's correct. And so at the end of her life, she gave you this volume. And what were you thinking at the time that she gave this to you? I was going to do something with it. I knew then that it was important and that I needed to do something. Even though I didn't do it for 20 years, 20 plus years, I did. Having looked at this publication what do, you, what do you personally think is the value that we get out of having access to these original copies of the Denver Star newspaper? Well, I'm also a genealogist, so it'll help families uh, trace their history. Mm-hmm. It will help organizations get a better understanding of their history. And that's crucial, especially now when we're in these times when the narrative is attacked. And that I'm saying. You know, we're past certain civil rights things, but now it's about the narrative, telling the story. And the story needs to be told. So I'm really, you know, I'm gung-ho with that. I um, I do a lot of things. My house is chalk with stuff, telling the story. Because are- I think in the future, people won't know the things. They won't know what's in that Denver store. They won't even understand the struggle of, quote, Negro newspapers. I've been doing some other research for different projects, and I have learned a lot about the role of the Black newspaper, the Black press, during these historic times. 
in capturing news events, but also day-to-day life for African-Americans. Is there anything that stood out in you looking at these issues in terms of things you learned about the Black community in Colorado and Denver at that time? Well, I don't think one thing specific. I think that the fact that Blacks were in Colorado, they were in Alabama, they were in Kansas, and a lot of people don't know that. They don't know the contributions they made, and they did. And like the Midwest was had a lot of Black papers, more so than the Deep South. So the very nature that that paper exists, it tells us a lot about Black people in the area. What is your hope now that the Denver Star originals have been donated and are now accessible at the Denver Public Library? I hope that young people get access to the information. I know I had some years that they didn't have. They have some of the years, but not all of them. And I was able to fill in the gaps. Mm. So I want young people to access them. I want young people to find out information because that's how we keep it going. Young people have to do the research. I can only do certain things. And I have done, I think in my lifetime, I've done a lot to preserve Black history all over the world. I've been to Turkey. I've been to Jamaica. I've been all over Africa. I've been all over the U.S. And I'm still doing what I can. And I hope that God extends my life so I continue to do it. Because that's important. Telling the story. Once again, telling the story. Dr. Dawson, thank you. Thank you. Dr. Nancy Dawson is a retired college professor and journalist based in Russellville, Kentucky. She gifted original hard copy editions of the historic Denver Star newspaper to the Denver Public Library. Let's head back to my visit there now with Special Collections Librarian Brian Trimbath. I got the chance to peruse some of the issues with him. So the true value of this is that you actually get a hard copy. And I guess it has a little more nostalgia to see an actual hard copy of a newspaper, historic newspaper. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why you might want to look at a hard copy. We've had people come in to look at, you know, what's the paper quality? What was the use of color in certain items? You know, in library world, there's a concept of the content and the container. So the content's the words. And that, you know, you can look at that anywhere There is something different about seeing a a physical item, and that's really what we strive for. Can Um, you describe for us, for someone who obviously can't see what we're looking at right now, can you give us a sense of what the newspaper volume looks like? So it's a bound volume that's about the size of an old tabloid-sized newspaper, which the Denver Star was was a tabloid size. It's the first few pages are pretty rough. These are the ones that have seen the most use. You know, they're a little bit torn at the bottom. As you go deeper in the volume, you see the condition is a lot better. So really like yellowing Mm -hmm. uh, paper, very kind of torn on the edges. Mm -hmm. Um, But you see the first issue says the Denver Star, Denver, Colorado, October 20th, 1934. Mm -hmm. And as you alluded to, there's a lot of racial news. Negro workers make great advancement along unionizing industrial plants. Uh, We also see NAACP attacks exclusion of Negroes from jury system in the South on, what does this say, broad? Broad lines. Broad lines. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, To your point, these first issues are really in poor condition, so you can almost barely read some of the articles. The newsprint is made with wood pulp. 
you know, the, the paper's made from wood pulp, so it's very acidic. You know, it wasn't meant to be kept forever. So it starts to get a little yellow. Um, if it's, you know, if it stays out of sunlight and air, you know, and in forever, um, it'll be in pretty good shape. And you can see a little further in, the papers, the pages aren't quite as yellow or as torn. Um, at some point, somebody had tried to repair some of the pages with some uh, scotch tape, which um, <laughs> the, the heart's in the right place, but um, scotch tape is also pretty acidic. Yes. Um, and it's not, it's not a good long-term fix. It, it will cause more damage over time. But I flagged a couple pages here that just kind of show an example of, of what you might see in this really stark contrast of um, this large picture of an American flag and the Colorado mountains, and it says Denver, Colorado, and it says, it's a privilege to live in Colorado, especially in Denver, and enjoy her beautiful mountain scenery and wonderful sunshine. And then the article right next to it, this is from December 5th, 1934, says, unmerciful beatings and horrible whippings of Negroes in Florida bring disgrace on state. I mean, this is... You know, that's that's pretty stark contrast. Um, Absolutely. But these kinds of, I mean, this this was not the story on the front page of the Rocky Mountain News on December 15th, 1934. And you can see on the other page, it's the back page of the issue before you see some ads for, you know, Five Points Retail Liquor Store. Haircut shop. uh, (laughs) Yeah, the the Denite um, service station and garage on East 26th, an African-American-owned coal and uh, wood company, which... um, you know, if you think about it, if you were an African-American in 1934, you might feel like you trusted an African-American-owned coal company more than maybe one that wasn't owned by uh, African-Americans. And yes, two different haircut shop places. And my guess is advertising in the Denver Star was also probably more affordable for the businesses of that community. But also, in terms of just marketing, if you're in Five Points, this is a great paper to reach people who live in Five Points if your business is there. So This is interesting. Riz Confectionery Company, Fountain Service, Candies, Lunches, and Dinners. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're advertising sandwiches, noodles, chile, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and also a cab company, Riz Cab Company. Yeah. Used to be a lot of uh, chili parlors in Denver, um, places that sold chili. And you'll find throughout here lots of church news, lots of church news. Yes, here's the um, a large, pretty friendly picture of Mayor Ben Stapleton that says, Ben again, howdy folks, that he was the mayor again, right next to a celebration of, you know, Lincoln's birthday. Mm. Um, you know, like here's Ben Stapleton above a picture of, you Frederick know, Douglas. Fre- Frederick Douglass. And- Who's described as the giant of Negro manhood whose birthday memorial we cherish always. February 14th, yeah. 1935. So, yeah, here's, here's another one um, that I thought you might find interesting is, is Negro History Week um, from 1935, um, and they're celebrating. I, I'm sure that was not on the front page of the Denver Post that day, and some pictures of, you know, some African-American veterans, and then... Ben Stapleton again. Yeah, it says, if Ben has been a friend, help Ben again. Once a friend, always a friend. Um, Let's look at this food ad here. Yeah. Canned fruits and blackberries for 15 cents, 24 cents a pound for some fish. 
And let's see, toilet paper rolls, 27 cents. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I don't know. You... I'm sure we all would, would wish we could go back to those yeah. prices. Yeah, <laughs> Let's yeah. see how much eggs cost. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. We always look, you know, there's there's some great websites that give you the inflation adjusted. Um, but sometimes these these prices are still pretty cheap, when even when you adjust them for inflation. But they're always interesting to see, you know, what, what was the thing that, that – um, I don't think they had fresh chitterlings uh, advertised <laughs> in the Denver Post, uh, for sure. Um, these are the businesses that wanted to market to the people who were reading this newspaper. So, um, you know, Ovaltine. it tells you something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Large Ovaltine, the, the chocolate drink. Wow. It's been around yeah, a long and time. Like I said, plenty of uh, religious coverage um, in there. Hmm. Um, you know, oh, this is the one where the um, Dr. Locke, the head of the KKK, dies suddenly while secretly setting a trap to seize more power from newly organized hate. So this is after, this kind of after the early 20th century clan had sort of, had were about 10 years past their peak of their power here when Locke died. And then again, you know, the American woodmen to hold an annual sermon at, uh, at Zion. Again, more church coverage. So, and then a story about sharecroppers in Arkansas. Fighting. Yeah. Yeah. So lots and lots of stories like this, uh, you know, that, that kind of news that, that was not front page news for sure. And under the banner, you see the Denver Star. We dedicate our journal to the uplift of the race morally, socially and intellectually. And you can see a, a subscription, uh, a one year subscription was was two dollars. Um, and you can see right there in the, in the banner, uh, you know, the masthead of the paper that, you know, where they say, how much it cost, who's the editor and all that. You know, right up top it says Jim Crow must go. You can't you can't have prejudice without at the same time having hate, fear, and selfishness. Um, and it just goes on. But you know, this is their, you know, their masthead. So, you know, they, they definitely had a mission. Brian Trimbath is a special collections librarian for the Denver Public Library. Earlier, I spoke with Dr. Nancy Dawson, the retired college professor and journalist based in Russellville, Kentucky, who donated original copies of the Denver Star newspaper to the Denver Public Library. We spoke in February. The Denver Star chronicled the lives of African Americans living in the Mountain West region from 1913 to 1963. The original copies are now available for viewing upon request in the special collections section of the central branch of the library located in downtown Denver. Digital copies are also available on the website coloradohistoricnewspapers.org. Coming up tomorrow on Colorado Matters, Democratic Congressman Jason Crow joins us. We'll ask about the National Security Council's take on what happened when the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan. Crow served there and also reflects on the Afghan guides left behind. Time after time, we'd be out on patrol, you know, deep, deep into um, Afghan, uh, Afghanistan territory in the mountains. And, you know, those, those guides would just, they would be a lot more than just people that would translate the words. They would help me understand the culture. They would help me understand what's going on. I mean, it, it, numerous instances where I would be meeting with tribal elders deep in a village somewhere in a remote area where we're very vulnerable uh, in, in, a, in a small unit. And, uh, you know, my translator would say, hey, you know, th- there's something not right here. Um, something doesn't match up. Uh, what, what you're being told is not, 
consistent with the with the history of this tribe in this region. Uh, they're they're you know giving each other looks that uh, make me uncomfortable, and and you know that that translator would have the ability to understand what was going on, the, the subtext, what was being said between the words. Mm. Uh, and uh, I could make decisions to pull out. I could make decisions to to move my my troops around based on that. And, and it was it was essential, right? It protected us. Uh, it protected uh, the locals in many instances, and it was really essential. And, and and these folks did that work at great personal risk to themselves and their families. Hear Ryan's interview with Colorado Representative Jason Crow tomorrow at 9 a.m. on Colorado Matters. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.